Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Chris, if you give a bit of a, a, a background on yourself, how did you actually come to being at, is it Venturi Private Wealth? Venturi Private Wealth, that's right. Yeah, if you can give us a, a background yeah. on that. Sure. I mean, I'll try to keep it relatively short, but so I've been at Venturi Private Wealth uh, for about three months, so it's still relatively new. Uh, and just quick background on the firm, $2 billion wealth management firm in, in Austin, Texas, Uh we, we service high net worth and ultra high net worth clients and kind of provide everything for them. Firm's been around for five years. And my job is to really build out the alternatives platform from uh, a kind of rudimentary starting point. I've known the founder of the firm, Russ, for about two years, and they spun out of Merrill Lynch. So Russ and his partner, George, were our co-founders. They were, you know, Merrill Lynch wealth management team for, for 25 years here in Austin, uh, have built a great business there. I kind of went went on their own about five or six years ago. Russ and I connected while I was at Texas Municipal Retirement System, and I was the director of private equity there, uh, just to chat about what they were doing, what they wanted to do when they got into alts, and kind of what we were doing as a large institution institutional allocator in alternatives here in town. And we just hit it off. Um, but so, so prior to, to joining Venturi, I was at Texas Municipal for five years, um, invested about Three billion across private equity. Immediately prior to that, I worked for the same CIO, uh, TJ Carlson, who is the CIO of Texas Muni. Before that, Kentucky Retirement Systems, and I was the deputy CIO, CIO there. Built out um, a private uh, private credit slash private real asset allocation and a hedge fund allocation, roughly a billion and a half in each. Uh, and I had about ten years in institutional investing, kind of before that. All of all of which have been focused on alternatives. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity at Venturi was to kind of take what I had kind of d- done and experienced in the institutional kind of asset management and asset allocator side in alternatives and apply a similar playbook uh, to the wealth management space. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it's very comparable. If you look at the size of assets in wealth management or individual assets, versus the institutional sector today in the States, they're roughly 24, 25 trillion, so about the same. But private wealth is growing at twice the rate that the institutional assets are. Now, when you look at kind of alternatives and the penetration of alternatives in those portfolios, you know, large public pensions are 25, 35% alternatives, endowments are 35 to 50% alternatives. That's not the case yet in individual portfolios. Uh, mass affluent are maybe zero to six percent. Uh, you know, high net worth investors may maybe have ten to twenty five percent, and then the ultra high net worth slash family offices they're closer to the you know thirty, forty, fifty percent that you'll see uh, in endowments, and they typically sit on those boards at universities. So it makes sense. But there's there's a clear trajectory for taking the skill sets and experiences, knowledge base of how to deploy into alternatives, and and transporting that to individual investors. So as a director of alternative investments, does that now also include private equity as part of it? Or is it more the traditional alternatives as we th- see in Australia, which is the absolute return, hedge fund, tread following, SCTA, market neutral approaches? What, what's your remit within that spectrum? 
Yeah, it's it's intentionally broad. It's basically everything that's not public stocks and and public bonds. So we have a little bit of exposure already in private equity um, and a few private hard asset strategies, um, but but broadening that exposure to more private equity strategies, some private you know real estate, real assets, private credit, which we don't have a whole lot of. Hedge funds could be included in that, um, and anything that's just anything that's ex traditional assets. So. Um, that's, that's as, as an allocator, that's exciting because you can kind of sit across all markets and kind of see where there is pockets of inefficiency or relative inefficiency. I'm curious to get a bit of you know your history in terms of how you've seen alternatives. It was obviously a very popular space 20 years ago. It was pretty undiscovered. Everyone was in traditional equities or, or bonds and the ability to capture alpha was through alternatives. A lot of people have now become you know, attuned to alternatives. It's become much more democratized. How much do you, you do you see that as being a challenge for finding alpha now in the new future of, of alternatives? Yeah, I mean, that that like challenges what alpha is or what alternatives it are, you know, in a portfolio. And I think there's a few there's a few things that you can take away from having the experience on the institutional allocator side. You can kind of see that evolution and what used to work, what stopped working and what clearly doesn't work today. And you have to kind of build from that going forward. So let's just take a look at hedge funds. You know, 20, 30 years ago, there were a cottage industry, right? You had a couple of hundred of, of you know, credible uh, hedge funds out there. And it was probably under a trillion of, of total dollars deployed into the industry for sure. Fast forward to today, there's, you know, three and a half or four trillion, depending upon what you look at. There's 10, you know, eight to 10,000 hedge funds out there. And there's this real clear bifurcation of, you know, excess return over time to the average hedge fund. In the first, you know, if you just look at 90 to call it 2020, first 15 years of that, hedge funds maybe generated, you know, 14, 15%. And the S&P is a proxy for kind of liquid stocks would have generated nine, nine and a half. It's not a perfect comp because they're not, you know, long only stocks, but the fact that they were able to outperform pure equity exposure with substantially less risk um, leads to, you know, pretty high alpha. Now there's arguments that that's got some, you know, embedded biases and maybe returns weren't quite that high. That's probably true. But even if you adjust for what they, they, they argue, academics argue, or some of the um, biases in those benchmark returns, it's still 200 basis points of excess return. Now, if you cut that right at the midpoint, so 2005 or so, and then roll forward the next 15 years, what you'll see is hedge funds over that second period, they generated about four and a half percent. And the stock market kept chugging along at eight, nine. Um, and so, right, the difference is the amount of capital deployed. Pre that 2004-2005 period, there were a lot of sophisticated investors in the space. Endowments had a you know high allocation to it already. The Yales and the uh, you know MITs kind of of the world, um, but the big difference was big pensions coming in. Frankly, you know big pensions in the states, big pensions overseas, um, and and they allocated trillions um, and and kind of changed the dynamic available. And so. A lot of the strategies that used to work, um, lots of competitors piled in, lots of capital came came into the space. And I think that largely that excess return is is gone. So you've got to look outside of what a lot of the traditional strategies have been in order to find what hedge funds used to do 
in a portfolio context, which was generate pretty solid returns, but albeit a little less correlated. It's interesting because I've heard many times about the amount of liquidity flooding into the market and that sort of eroded alpha. We've also heard that the discussion around a lot of beta style solutions now are basically alpha what it was. But the other thing that I would like to sort of question you on is that there's a lot of thought around institutional investors really asking for a particular type of return stream, a particular type of risk management that's ultimately forcing these hedge funds to perform in a particular way, which is actually different to what they were initially designed to be and quite lumpy in the way they build their portfolios, highly concentrated, you know, maybe not so liquid, but now the expectation of their investors has changed and that that's maybe potentially hurting the opportunities in the hedge fund space. I think that's Absolutely part of it too. I mean, there is an argument to be made that more and more capital pursuing a limited opportunity set will erode that. But there's been a change in the cost of capital for hedge funds in part because of the institutions. And part of it's totally rational, right? I worked at a couple of pensions. Our actuarial required rate of return was, you know, 675 at the last one I worked at, which is 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 moderately low compared to a lot of other public pensions in the states. Now, if that's what you need to hit, right, you can have a lower cost of capital for similar strategies than than other people. And what's the role of a hedge fund? Well, if it's to kind of diversify away from exposure, uh, from from equity exposure in the portfolio, like you can take a little bit lower return to get some of that diversification. And here's another point that I'd that I'd add, right? Net of taxes, pensions have a lower cost of capital for hedge funds than you know, individuals do because hedge funds are pretty tax inefficient, frankly, for a lot of individual investors. But as a big public pension in the States, you pay no taxes on anything. So your your net of fee return is your total return. So, you know, that makes sense for public pensions and, and big institutional allocators to look at a hedge fund and say, okay, I don't need returns in excess of long only equities. I don't need that. What I do need from you is something that doesn't zig perfectly when the public market does zig. You give me some zag for it and a little bit of reduced volatility. So, you know, the only challenge to that is when the thesis for an investment kind of changes over the hold period. And and the thesis is largely based upon, I need you to beat the equity markets and do it uncorrelated to the kind of interim, which was generate equity-like returns with bond-like risk to what it is today in a lot of portfolios, and that's pure fixed income substitute, right? I, I think that that's not achievable because that's not what they were designed to do initially. And they frankly have a lot higher correlation to long-only equities than fixed income, fixed income does. The, the whole discussion around correlation is fascinating because everyone talks about a diversified portfolio uh, and, the, and the need for that, obviously, to help them through crises. But with the amount mm-hmm. of liquidity coming in, everything seems to be moving in the same direction. The correlation's mm-hmm. pretty high. It, it's getting very hard to find things that are actually risk-off style solutions. And, and I think that's true. Yeah. And, and you know- which, which, again, to me, challenges the thesis for hedge funds as a pure fixed income replacement. They're not that uncorrelated. Really, their correlation is, call it, you know, 8, 0.8, 0.85, something like that to, to equities. They get their beta down, right, by just managing their exposures and having a vol that's four. And so you have a beta of 0.35. But if you want something that's uncorrelated, you actually are better off having higher vol and lower correlation. So, I mean... It, 
to me, it challenges their role in a portfolio. That's the takeaway. It's just harder and harder to look at a traditional um, basket of hedge fund strategies and say, hey, this is really additive. So does that mean then that the types of actual hedge fund strategies that you put in the portfolio would have really changed in the last sort of 10 years, maybe 15 years, that you really need to be looking for maybe long vol, highly convex style strategies? Is is that where we need to go as opposed to the traditional long short? I think people have and where they sit in a portfolio has migrated. A lot of allocators and investors are thinking of long short as more out of uh, a carve out in your long only bucket, right? So it's beta risk and it might be just modified beta risk, but it's kind of an extension strategy. If you want something that's really uncorrelated, you got to find things that are uncorrelated. So, I mean, kind of yes and no, right? It's a cheap answer. <laughs> it means hedge funds as a pie slice, that's dead. They're, they're, they're not a thing. If you want something that's truly uncorrelated, yes, you probably shouldn't have you know, liquid credit or distressed, which is super cyclical or equity oriented strategies sitting in a hedge fund bucket. Um, you could still do them in a long only portfolio, again, kind of mod- modify your exposure. But I think if you want uncorrelated, there's more stuff to do outside of purely liquid. You have to be willing to think about a little bit of illiquidity and go do stuff like royalties, you know, mineral rights, um, life settlement, you know, catastrophe risk and various different sort of uh, iterations. And, and that can serve kind of the role that hedge funds used to with the high single digits into low double digits and, you know, less than perfectly correlated with equities. I guess then the next challenge is like how to find these solutions that are not swamped by other liquidity. So you need to try and fa- find more and more niche style strategies, um, you know, whether it's in a particular private equity group and very small parts, whether it's a particular trading strategy. So you've got a bit of a challenge for different types of institutional investors, how to find these solutions that maybe aren't as scalable as we would like. That's right. I mean, I, I write uh, I write a column for institutional investor. One of my colleagues, Angelo Calvello, uh, has, has published an article that says basically shut up about your niche strategies. Because everyone talks about niche strategies, but you really can't access them in scale. So it, it makes it difficult for large allocators. But one of the benefits of being at a wealth management firm or you know, a family office or an individual investor looking to kind of access these strategies is that they're, they're capacity constrained and you don't need as much capacity. Our private markets type of you know, commitment or expectation for the next year or two is going to be maybe $100 million. Um, my prior role, I was committing over 500 million and we doubled that the last year I was there to a billion dollars of commitment. You have to look at different things. Um, and it, that, that's just, you know, it's, it's funny. The frictions are really what drive decision-making in private markets. A lot of the people running a hundred billion, running 50, you know, 50 billion and running a hundred million think about things the same way, but they just have different, uh, structural constraints. Yeah, operationally, it's also very difficult too. And the other challenge that's quite interesting is that every of the of the large institutional investors in Australia, they're always looking for new ideas. But then you've mm-hmm. also got to get these new ideas into the portfolio. Totally. You need to be able to do due diligence as well and make sure that they tick all those boxes. And mm-hmm. in many cases, they can't. That's right. I mean, I can't tell the number of conversations I've had with people at CDP, at Texas Teachers, 
at, you know, Utimco at Sun Super. And we talk about all this different stuff that we're doing. But when we start with investment philosophy, kind of look through opportunities, and then they go through investment process, the team, the structure, right, the size of their pacing, how much, you know, they can get through their investment committee, all these things. That's really what decides what the different institutions are, are doing. So you get to the outcomes, they look wildly different in a lot of cases, but, but they completely make sense. And so, again, part of what I think is interesting to move to a smaller role in the private sector is remove a lot of those portfolio constraints and then just start with where's the most opportunity, where's the most attractive return per those units of risk that you're taking. And they happen to be in a lot of the less heavily trafficked spaces. So you can call them niche, whatnot. They're just less overcapitalized. I think that's the whole, right? That's the whole kind of decline of alpha everywhere is, is once something becomes overcapitalized, once it becomes more widely covered, widely disseminated, there's rule-based processes to access it, lots of information around it. Everybody's doing it. It looks more like beta and it's more of a traditional building block in a portfolio. But then you've got to move into these other segments that aren't, you know, as as competitive. And to be to be clear, everything's more competitive today than it was 20 years ago. So it's just a faster and faster treadmill you got to run. So I'm curious, then, is chasing alpha for these large institutional investors really just a fool's errand? What they can. Yeah, it probably is. Right. And a lot of them are just saying, you know what, we're doing away with that allocation. Um, You know, a couple of the big plans in the states have just said we're cutting hedge funds. I think it was CalPERS and, and they, you know, at 400 billion or whatever CalPERS is, how much can you really put the work in more traditional hedge fund strategies, even if you're running full out to diligence, to source diligence and just cut checks into funds, it's not going to move the needle. And so the, the additional complexity, you know, needed to monitor and do all that and the costs associated with it at that scale, it kind of just, it doesn't make sense. So Again, I, I totally agree. And I think that that's what you're seeing in a lot of these institutions. I know a lot of them still talk about alpha and beating indices and so forth. So is the way that they then can go about that is really through operational alpha or some sort of structural alpha and the way they, they build their deals, particularly maybe in infrastructure or private equity. Is that where alpha is maybe most uh, available for them? I I think it's easier to find that way. and And you kind of remove yourself from this, you know, benchmark linked chasing alpha process. And you start to think about risk and cost of capital and required rates of return, which, which frankly is, is more real finance, right? It's, it's more underwriting assets and investments according to an expected rate of return relative to whatever investment risk you're actually taking over a whole period, as opposed to beta, which is a purely quantitative, you know, model and it's kind of backward looking and it's a linear regression when we know kind of returns aren't exactly perfectly linear. And so there's all sorts of reasons why I think that's been helpful, but removing yourself at scale from that game and saying, all right, what do we need from this illiquid exposure, right? Do we need 10, 12, 15? What is the actual fundamental risk relative to comparable assets? They may be public, they may be, they may be not. But if we feel we're getting the required return, right, relative to that allocation in our portfolio, that illiquidity in our portfolio, right, then alpha kind of becomes accessing an excess return relative to your required return. Of course, that's gameable, right? Everybody can just sort of sandbag required returns and beat it. But you've got to be intellectually honest 
And, and that's where you're really going to add value, I think, to, to an investment process. What do we need to earn? Right. Every institution has a required rate of return, whether it's a, a real plus for a spending rate, whether it's a, you know, actuarial or assumed rate of return going into a pension calculation. Everybody has those numbers and, and, and giving yourself a higher probability of meeting that or exceeding that. To me, that is where there's still an ability to add excess return. So then I guess the, the next challenge for, for a lot of these allocators is around the lumpiness of alternatives in terms of the way they create returns. Uh, you know, how do you then ad- adjust for that? You know, in, in some cases where price isn't observable so often, it sort of gives this uh, perception that there's low volatility, it's smoothed out. I know there's many super funds in Australia that love private equity and these sort of private assets because they can dial down the volatility. But you yeah. know, that's ultimately not it's not really addressing the underlying risk of these assets. How do you then try to align yeah. those two issues around the, the real risk that sits in some of these assets and then the potential returns as well? Well, there's two, there's two kind of approaches. You nailed one, which is just to say the quarterly marks, that's the vol, right? Put vol into our reported returns. It goes down by adding private markets. That's, that's just the fact. So there are plenty of institutions that say, well, we like it because it lowers our risk. It makes us a lower vol, you know, a lower vol fund. The other approach and it's more quantitative in nature is to just kind of, um, it's just kind of de-smooth the return profile. So you introduce kind of some public market volatility times, some sort of autocorrelation or a regressed beta or something like that. And you, you, you Im- increase the volatility of the liquid exposure. I would argue that neither of those are really the best way to think about it because, again, volatility has become the de facto proxy for risk, which which it's important to understand. It's a proxy for risk. It is not risk. Back to kind of thinking about required rate of return, the risk in an investment portfolio is you fail to generate your required rate of return. Why are pensions underfunded in this country? Well, some of them have not been funded by their legislatures. That's a problem. Um, and I've worked at one, but some of them, you know, failed to hit their required rate of return over long periods. If, if you're saving that X amount of savings will give me X amount of spendings, as long as I earn seven, right. You go earn six and a half, that's failure. So risk should be a proxy for that failure, right? Volatility in liquid markets is a rough proxy, but actually it's not that great. If you look at even public stocks, Right over a 20 year period, you're going to get a positive return. Volatility is going to be, you know, 12 to 18%, almost guaranteed. But, but what does that tell you about the likelihood of the return? Is it going to be 10? Is it going to be four? Is it going to be one? Right. There's factors that you can look at, like the CAPE PE ratio, the case shoulder PE ratio, when it's above 25, like your returns over a 20 year period are going to be four. Right. When it's below 15, your returns are, you know, going to be probably double digits. And, and it's probabilistic, not deterministic, because there's no guarantees in investing. But, but to me, thinking about risk, if you need seven, right, and you're starting with, with an expectation of four, that's, that's likelihood of failure, that's risk. So I think you can kind of reframe the context of risk, and then you can put public markets and private markets on the same footing. So how do you do that? Well, you, you think more about what's the probability of return over a hold period. 
we just we just kind of looked at it in, in public equities. Again, no guarantees, but if I'm starting today, looking forward 20 years, if I if I say I need 10, probably not going to get 10, right? That's a risky proposition. If I say I need four, I still may get 10. Great, I outperformed. But I'm starting with a more realistic expectation. Private markets are the same thing. When you start with a cost of capital approach, you're actually looking at what do I need? And so if you need PE to give you 15 or 12 or whatever number that you put in that, you should build a portfolio with a higher probability of that. And it doesn't matter what the vol is over the whole period, right? Think of it more like a laddered bond portfolio. It matters what the probability is that you're going to get that rate of return. Now, if you look at an individual private equity backed business, it's got, call it a 30 to 35% chance of returning less than cost. Right? Lots of private equity businesses are worth zero, lots are worth 2x, but just the probability distribution, yeah, a third of them. If you look at a fund, right, and funds still lose money, but if you look at a fund, it's 10 to 15% of funds generate negative returns. Now you build a portfolio of funds and co-investments, you know, call it 10 of each, you have a 99% plus chance of a positive rate of return over a 10-year fund life. So like to me, that's the way to standardize risk across asset classes. In credit, it's the same thing. Like what's the probability of credit losses versus the severity of credit losses, right? If how much of my debt's going to go non-performing and what am I going to recover in a workout situation? But you can calculate an expected return and that's what you need. You either beat it or you don't. You add that up across the portfolio. I would rather have a portfolio with a 75% chance of meeting my required seven than one with a 50-50 mix and certainly one with only a 25% chance. And whatever exposures have to go into that, that's the risk that I should be taking. It's not, right, it's not a riskier portfolio. It's a less risky one. One thing you didn't discuss there in that discussion of risk is that there are a huge amounts of leverage that are added to the system, whether it's in private equity, in some of these private credit strategies. And so as you build them into a portfolio, it is actually creating uh, even more risk, right? The asymmetric payoffs are much larger on the upside, but you've also got very high chance of, of hitting zero. So how do you then, I guess, adjust for that piece of the you know, this additional risk that's come into the portfolio? Yeah, leverage is embedded. I mean, you have to do real work to ensure you understand the, the asset level risk that you're taking, right? It does no good if you just delude yourself to thinking I've got, you know, the safe bond and what I'm really investing in is super risky structured something with embedded leverage on it and a, you know, really low attachment or whatever. You've got to actually understand that. And I think, you know, I think, I think probably volatility or uh, I'm sorry, I think probably leverage is similar to volatility in that it's often bandied about, but people really don't know what they're getting. And so um, let's just, let's just look at a, a private equity fund, right? Private equity funds today, they're all using um, subscription facilities. So virtually everyone out there will have a subscription line. Most of their initial capital calls will be placed on this subscription line as opposed to drawn from equity. So Looking through to the LP, you got a commitment, nothing's been called, you got assets in the ground. Well, that that actually is leverage. And what you've got reserved for that call is probably not sitting in cash, it's probably sitting in invested assets in the other part of the portfolio. That's an overcommitment strategy. So you have to measure these things absolutely. And if you're not 
you know, if you're not going to dedicate the resources and the team, um, which, which frankly it's expensive right? and, and resource intensive to know those things, then yeah, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And I do think that there probably are lots of people that don't know exactly how much they have. I mean, during the, 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 the COVID crisis at Texas municipal, we were preparing for this. We were calculating how much we had sitting on sublines of our unfunded that if sublines were pulled, what would happen to that? Would we have to fund those equity calls immediately? And we went to raise a little bit more cash from our liquid equity portfolio, which was the funding asset, in order to ensure that we were prepared should that happen. And sure enough, that's what happened. If, if you recall in March of, of 2020, right, a lot of GPs, they got out ahead. February and March of 2020, they got out ahead of the severe equity correction, and they started to call down additional capital from their LPs. Um, in order to pay off those sublines, just so that they wouldn't get pulled. And so we were prepared for that, but totally agree. Like, listen, that's, that requires a lot of resources and sophistication. Well, this is an interesting segue, I think, to a recent book that you wrote, which is called Better Than Alpha. And it's sort of a, a three-step framework for making better uh, investment decisions. Maybe if you can give a bit of background to, to the book and, and why you wrote it. So the, the book kind of was uh, several years worth of thinking, you know, all pieced together. And there was kind of a story there that I didn't necessarily set out to write, but I realized it had been kind of woven across of the themes of a lot of the articles that I was writing for Institutional Investor, et cetera. And it really told this story of how, you know, alpha is really just rules-based exposures that over time kind of look more and more like beta as more people become familiar with it, more people imitate it. You know, um, the lieutenants at the hedge fund who were trained up on the strategy spin out and launch their own fund, et cetera. And it just, you know, more information, more knowledge on a strategy leads to more imitators, right? Academics write about it. Everyone knows it. The alpha goes away. It kind of becomes beta, which, which actually Maybe it wasn't really alpha to begin with. It was just, you know, rules based. And so this framework, thinking about market efficiency, right, it really helps you just look at public equities, large cap versus small cap, and, and, you know, bond markets, currency markets, thinking about private markets and even within private markets, you know, mega deals, large deals, mid market deals, small deals. They all have different, um, types of market efficiencies. And, um, how can you think about that? right, in a traditional portfolio context. Well, it becomes really hard. And, right, mean variance optimization doesn't necessarily work. So we kind of went through vol. Um, but how can you still do it well? I think you can. And I think there's unifying theories to, to this. What works in public markets? What works in private markets? Well, it's a little different, but it's still the same thing. It's looking for expected rates of return, things which are, you know, predictive, albeit imperfectly predictive of those returns. Focusing your resources where it makes sense. Today in large cap stocks, I don't think it makes sense to try and pick stocks, right? I mean, the spread between the, the top and bottom mutual fund managers is basis points and it disappears within months. Um, so, so don't, don't spend limited resources on trying to do that. But how do you go through, you know, changing market conditions and different market segments with that kind of framework? And what I came up with were, sort of three different processes to managing an investment, uh, an investment process really. And it's, I call it behavioral alpha, which, which is also smart thinking. 
process alpha, which is smart habits, and then ultimately organizational you know, alpha, smart governance. And, and arguably, smart governance leads into all of that because you can't you can't do step one and two without having your, you know, your governance optimized. Um, and so what does this all mean? Well, you know, to me, behavioral alpha is, is really thinking about these things in an intelligent, rational and empirical based way. Like what can we find that's, that's knowable, that that's measurable. It's not going to be perfect, right? But it's all about calculating the odds. Ma- Michael Malbison calls it a baseline. Right. So figuring out where the base rate, what's the base rate, figuring out those things uh, and then kind of, you know, figuring out where you should spend those limited um, that limited brain power. I mean, we, we can't all spend hours every day thinking and researching and everything. And so whatever your resources are, spend them where it makes sense and then systematize where you're not going to be spending a ton of time thinking. So if we that's process alpha to me, right, where can you put uh, a more rules-based approach in, whether it is a pure beta, right? Because we can't beat the S&P in my prior example, just do that. Right? Where can you automate as much as possible where you're not putting in discretionary thinking and just put that on autopilot? Right? And, and so those are the two kind of different components. They line up with system one thinking and system two thinking, right? System one is intuitive. You, you really don't want to use it to make investing because it's kind of make investing decisions. It's kind of a gut feel approach. Um, take thinking out of that and automate it based on rules. System two is thinking. It is spend my time on researching, but we have limited bandwidth. And like even the research on mental energy and decision-making when fatigued shows this. There's an interesting, um, there's an interesting study on um, judges in Israel um, looking at candidates for parole. And what you see is what the authors hoped to see was that it would be a real rational, you know, application of jurisprudence to the uh, the facts of the case. And what they found was in the morning, it was 50-50. Some people got parole, some people didn't. As you got closer to lunch, dropped to zero people paroled. Lunch break, went right back to 50-50. And then towards the end of the day, dropped back down to zero. We have limited mental um, mental stamina to make decisions on system two. We get tired and we resort to heuristics. We resort back to system one. So you've got to take that out of the process, right? Behavioral alpha is all about focusing on where you actually do a good job, limit that process alpha, automate the rest of it. So you're not getting that drop off in performance. That, that really opens up an interesting discussion around behavioral biases in people uh, it also deals with markets and market narratives that influence people. And then how mm-hmm. do you then work out how to allocate your time, which is part of your discussion, uh, is really one of the, the hardest things, I think, for a lot of funds because they've got to always be busy, always be reviewing things, always making decisions, writing hundreds of pages for their investment committee all the time. And chances are it's just adding more and more noise, more and more complexity and actually not improving their, their outcomes. That's totally right, right? Your, 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 your governance kind of has to be aligned with those two earlier components. Like I said, if you've got, you know, 150 people, well, yes, by gosh, you're going to be spending time how to optimize large cap public equities, but maybe that's still not the best use, you know, of resources. I think 
I think that's something that a lot of institutions struggle with. And, and that's frankly just like the culture of the investment community, right? We think a seven-hour investment committee is a testament to our stamina. Well, the research shows it's pretty unequivocal. It's probably, a, a, you know, it's probably foolish. It's probably a waste of time. And the last 20 things you're talking about over the last two, three hours, you're, you're allocating suboptimal resources to. So it kind of requires sort of a, of a, of a redesign. And this is why I say like governance really factors into it. What are your resources? Well, if you start with, we've only got two people on staff, right? And we're managing the entire portfolio. Well, you shouldn't spend any time really on public markets. Think about what's the, what's the mix of debt and equity? What's the, you know, components of those, you know, you know, rates versus credit, large versus small growth versus value. Fine. Spend times on that part of it. But once you've got that, just go cheap, simple, easy. And again, spend your limited resources elsewhere. I, I'm not sure a lot of people really kind of start with that in mind. Like, what are our constraints from a from a governance perspective, from a processing perspective, and then how could we optimize around those things? You kind of fall, you kind of get there, right? You start with what's the best investments that we can do, and you kind of sort through it all. And at the end of it, your constraints kind of you know change what you can do. I think you can you can invert it. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Chris. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.